Hello, 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 and welcome to Tell Me Murder with your host, Sean. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing the unsolved murders of two young women from London that happened back in the 1970s. After going cold, these cases had a shocking twist that was discovered over 30 years later, which then had police questioning whether that they had a serial killer on their hands and whether he would ever be brought to justice for his crimes. These are the unsolved murders of Eve Stratford and Lynn Whedon. So we'll first start with Eve's case. Eve Stratford was born in Dormund, West Germany in 1953 to parents Albert and Lisa Stratford. Albert was a medic with the British Army and had been deployed to Germany and this is where he had met his German wife, Lisa. The pair fell in love and went on to get married and have two children together, an older son called Bert and a younger daughter called Eve. During Eve's childhood, the family of four moved around the world due to Albert's line of work, and they actually spent a large amount of Eve's school years living in Singapore, before finally settling down in a place called Aldershot in Hampshire, England where Albert saw out his last few years of service. By 1972, Albert had left the army and he had been offered a job with a large construction company in the UK called George Wimpy. This role required the family to move again, this time further up north in England to an area called Warrington in Cheshire. And at this point, Eve was 19 years old and she was ready to leave the family home and move out. She had dreams of becoming a model since she was a little girl and she had often entered beauty competitions throughout her childhood. She had actually won three of these when the family were back living in Germany and you can see why. She was tall, of slim build, she had this long blonde hair and this strikingly pretty face. So her family relocated to Cheshire without Eve and she moved to London to try and pursue a career in modelling. And at this time, she had a boyfriend who was five years her senior, and his name was Tony Priest. Priest was in a band called The Onyx, and they weren't a very famous band, but they had released seven singles in the UK. They had done a tour around the UK and Germany, and had been featured on BBC Radio 1 sessions multiple times as well. So he was making a small living off this at this point, and he lived with his bandmates in a three-bedroomed flat in Leighton, East London. So Eve moved into the flat with Tony and his bandmates that year. Not long after, she had gotten a job as a bunny girl for a prestigious Playboy club on Park Lane through being recommended by one of her friends who already worked there. The bunny girls were the symbol of Playboy back then, and they worked as cocktail waitresses slash models for the club and were there to mix with the members. They wore these strapless corset leotard outfits with a dicky bow around their neck and the iconic Playboy ears on their head whilst they were at work. And Eve loved this job. The club scene in the 1970s was huge in London, so it was a fun, social and glamorous role for her. And she also saw this job as an opportunity to get her foot in the door with Playboy and to be hopefully noticed by them in the future to possibly pose for one of their magazines. She was also mixing with high-profile people at the club as well. She had photos with celebrities such as boxing champion Sid James and famous comedian at the time Eric Morecambe. 
She actually sent these photos back home to her parents in Cheshire and was said to be very proud of them. And her parents were also proud of her. Her dad, Albert, later said in an interview that Eve was so beautiful inside and out, but also very intelligent. She actually spoke three different languages, which were English, Russian and German. And she was just one of those people that had it in her to achieve anything she wanted to in life, and he knew that she would go far. Eve was said to be very close to her family, but especially her dad. The pair shared a very close bond. So by 1974, Eve was due to turn 21 in the December. She was still living her glamorous lifestyle at the club and also still living with Tony. Though it was around this time that Tony and his bandmates decided to call it a day on the Onyx, and they'd all gotten jobs as forklift truck drivers instead to earn a bit of money. And in the December, Eve travelled up to Cheshire to celebrate her milestone birthday with her family. She brought along Tony and some of her London friends up for the celebration as well. She stayed at her parents' house over the Christmas and New Year's Eve period before she travelled back down to London in January 1975. Her dad was going on a long work trip to Congo at this time, so he had actually joined Eve on the train journey down as he was catching his flight from Heathrow Airport. The two hugged and parted ways at Euston Station before Albert caught his next train. And unbeknownst to him, this would be the last ever time he would see his 21-year-old daughter alive. Eve went back to work at the club as normal, that is, until a month later, in February 1975, a rival magazine called Mayfair had approached Eve and they wanted her to feature on their front cover as the March cover girl. And Eve saw this as her big break in her modelling career. So she agreed and posed topless for the front cover of Mayfair under her model name, Ava Von Bork. And written on the cover next to her were the words, the most classic blonde we've ever found. There was also an explicit interview with Eve in the magazine, where Eve had mentioned that she liked to be dominated in the bedroom. She didn't like to be tied up, but she definitely liked to be put in her place by men. The magazine was published early March and was on every top shelf of every news agency in London and had sold over 460,000 copies. When Playboy learned this, they quickly suspended Eve for being in breach of her contract by working with a rival magazine. But Eve didn't regret her decision. It was a big step for her to be on the front cover. Shortly after this, Eve went on to do two more modelling assignments that month that her manager had organised. One was where she posed nude for a South African magazine, and the other assignment was where she modelled for a crime fiction book cover. For this particular shoot, she had blood on her and had a knife against her throat. This would be an ominous prediction of what was to come for Eve. As less than a week later, on Tuesday the 18th of March 1975, Tony came home from work at 20 past 5 in the evening along with their flatmate to find Eve murdered in their bedroom. Eve was found lying face down in a pool of blood on their mattress. She had her hands tied with a scarf behind her back and had a nylon stocking tied around one of her ankles, making it seem like someone had tried to tie her feet together. She was found wearing just her underwear with a sheer thin dressing gown on over the top. Her throat had been cut from ear to ear 
between 8 to 12 times. The cuts were so deep and severe that they had almost severed her head. It was later found out that Eve had been sexually assaulted prior to her death. Detectives who arrived at the scene said it's one of the most violent and gruesome murder scenes that they had ever witnessed in their careers. Police didn't find any murder weapon at the scene and also found no forced entry into Eve's apartment. They then thought that Eve's killer must have been someone that she knew and had willingly let into the flat, but with little evidence, it was a difficult investigation for police. They went through Eve's last day to see if it provided them with any leads and found that on the day of her death, Eve had awoken with Tony that morning when he had left for work at around 7.30am. Her landlord then knocked on her door at 9am to collect the rent and she had left the apartment for a meeting early in that afternoon and met with her manager in Camden. She had then attended a second meeting with a productions company in Bayswater at 20 past two in the afternoon. That meeting lasted around half an hour. Eve then set off on her journey home at around 10 to three. And after appealing for witnesses and knocking on doors in the area where Eve lived, police found that multiple witnesses had seen Eve making her journey back home from Bayswater to Leighton. One witness placed Eve at Leighton Tube Station at 3.30pm. Tony had told police that Eve would walk the exact same route home from the station to the flat and that it was around a 30-minute walk. Another witness had seen Eve near her apartment at 4pm, so police knew that she had not called anywhere else when she was walking from the station back home. This witness was the last known person other than the killer to have seen Eve alive. All these witnesses had given police a similar description of Eve. She was wearing a floppy hat, carrying a dried bunch of flowers in her arms, and that she was walking alone. They didn't see anyone suspicious following her. Police also conducted interviews with other tenants living in Eve's apartment block. The woman who lived below Eve and Tony's apartment had said that she had heard a male and female talking at around 4.30pm in a calm manner. She was sure of the time as she was watching a TV programme. She didn't hear what the conversation was regarding, but she definitely didn't hear any sort of fight or struggle that had come from upstairs. She did, however, hear a thud shortly after the conversation, followed by some footsteps, but she just thought that this was a chair falling over. Police then thought that this was the time that Eve had been murdered. Tony had a Thai alibi. He was at work as a forklift truck driver with their flatmate and he had been all day. They then had made the journey home together. Police still thought though that it must have been somebody who Eve knew to let into her apartment and they thought that maybe she was having an affair on Tony. They theorised that she invited this secret boyfriend round to her apartment and greeted them already dressed in her underwear. But shortly after they arrived, some sort of argument had happened and he had killed her. But this theory was soon squashed as it didn't make a lot of sense. If Eve got home around 4pm, she knew that Tony would be arriving home from work any time around 5 This only gave a small window to invite a secret boyfriend round. 
especially if she didn't want to be caught. After this, detectives interviewed members and employees at the Playboy Club, thinking that it may have been someone who had taken a fancy to Eve and who she had turned down. They started to look into a member called Abdul Koala, nicknamed Little Abdul by staff at the club. He was of Lebanese descent and visited the club every single day for lunch. He had links to London's criminal underworld and had enjoyed socialising with Eve a lot at the club when she was at work. So he was a high person of interest for police. They could never find any evidence to link him to the murder though. And he later told a manager at the club that he has never been able to shake off the suspicion from some people that he killed Eve even years later and that this had ruined his life. Photographer Peter Cook also came under suspicion after he had been the one that had taken the photos of Eve for the South African magazine and also for the crime fiction cover, the one that had predicted Eve's death. Police thought this was extremely suspicious that she ended up dying the same month in the same way that he had taken photos of her. Both him and the art director of the shoot came under suspicion, as it turns out the art director had taken a bit of a liking to Eve during this shoot and he had asked for her number. Eve had politely declined, but he wrote his number in her diary anyway and police thought that maybe he'd killed Eve after being angry that she turned him down. Because of this, he was actually brought into the police station and ended up spending the night there whilst being questioned. Again, however, the police could find no evidence that these two suspects had been responsible for Eve's death. So police then became convinced that the killer had seen Eve on the cover of Mayfair, and this had ultimately led her to her death. As there was no murder weapon at the scene, they believed that the murder had been premeditated, and as she'd been sexually assaulted, they thought that the murder was sexually motivated as well. They thought that the killer had seen Eve on the cover and had tracked her down to her apartment, believing that she lived alone. As she had actually mentioned in that interview with Mayfair that she only lived with her cat. She probably said this as it was an adult magazine, she might not have wanted to ruin the reader's fantasy by mentioning that she lived with her current boyfriend and two other males, so she probably just said that she lived alone. So the killer probably didn't expect anyone to be at home to interrupt him attacking Eve and that it was actually just by luck that he had missed Tony coming home by as little as 20 minutes. Police thought that the killer probably waited for Eve to arrive home and then ambushed her as she did so with a weapon and told her to keep quiet so Eve let him in. This is also why they were heard speaking in calm tones as the killer probably threatened to harm Eve if she screamed so she just complied so she wasn't harmed and she also knew that Tony would be arriving home soon so she just did exactly what her attacker said. The murder absolutely shocked London at the time. It was on the front page of every major newspaper but despite this no solid leads ever came to light and there was no evidence found on the people of interest. Eve's family were devastated as you can imagine. Her dad, Albert, was actually still in Congo for work at the time of Eve's death and Lisa was just too devastated to let him know what had happened. And in the 1970s, there were no family liaison officers within the police that assist families in these sorts of cases. 
so it was actually down to Albert's employer, George Wimpy, to inform him of Eve's passing. They told him that she had been in an accident and that he needed to get the first flight back to England. They sent him a car to collect him from the airport. Albert said that when he got into the back seat, there was the Sun newspaper with the headline reading, Bunny Girl Killed, and a picture of Eve on the front cover. This is how he learned of his daughter's murder. He later found that the magazine had been placed there on purpose as the employees at George Wimpy didn't know how to break the tragic news to him. Albert had gone to the club on his return to England to speak to Eve's colleagues to find out any information on her death. He also went to visit Ronnie Cray in prison to see if he had any contacts in the criminal underworld who might have any information on who killed his daughter. But no new information came from either of these meetings and the case went cold in 1976, leaving detectives and Eve's family haunted by her murder. That is, until over 30 years later, in 2004. Advanced DNA technology had been invented, and it was revolutionary in solving cold cases. Eve's case was reopened, and detectives remarkably extracted some DNA from Eve's dressing gown that had been in storage all this time. When they ran this DNA through the database, they unfortunately didn't get a match to the killer. However, they shockingly and unexpectedly got a match to another cold case that happened the same year that Eve was murdered, a mere six months later. Detectives were stunned. They never expected Eve's killer to be linked to another case, but this case in particular. The two were so different from the victim to the manner of death to the fact that it was in a completely different area, literally the opposite side of London. Without this DNA evidence, detectives would have never dreamed of linking the two together. So let's take it back to the year 1975 on a cold Wednesday night on the 3rd of September. 16-year-old schoolgirl, Lynn Whedon, was living with her parents, Fred and Margaret, in a house on Lampton Road in Hounslow, West London. On this particular evening, Lynn was out celebrating her recent successful O-level results with a group of friends at the Elm Tree pub in Hounslow. She left the pub with these friends after 11pm to walk home. Her house was around a 25-minute walk back from this pub. She parted ways with her friends on a road called the Great West Road to walk the remainder of her journey alone. This was around a further eight-minute walk. She decided to take a shortcut down an alleyway known as Short Hedges, which her mum had actually told her to, one, never walk home alone, that she could always call her parents from the pub and they would nip round and pick her up, and two, to never take the shortcut down the alleyway, especially when it's dark. Unfortunately, on that night, Lynn decided to walk home alone and also to take the shortcut down the alleyway. This would be a decision that would cost her her life. After entering the alleyway at around 20 past 11, Lynn was struck on the head with a blunt object similar to that of a lead pipe which had fractured her skull. Her killer then lifted her over the fence and dropped her into the grounds of a power station. He then dragged her out of sight so he could rape her without being seen. He then ran off and left her for dead. 
Lynn was laid in the cold all night before she was found by a school caretaker on his way to work at around 6am the next morning. At this point, she was still alive. She was taken to the local hospital, but she sadly died of her injuries a week later without ever regaining consciousness. There was no evidence or murder weapon that had been left at the scene, so police had little to go off. There were, however, some witnesses that had seen a male near the scene at around the time of Lynn's death. A witness was out walking his dog at this time, and he saw a white male walking down the alleyway at around 11.15. Other witnesses also saw what is believed to be the same individual running across Great West Road and entering the alleyway. Police believed that this was Lynn's killer. But this male has never been found and no further evidence has ever come to light. And much like in Eve's case, Lynn's case soon went cold. So fast forward again to 2004 when the cases were unexpectedly linked. Police did test the DNA of 16 main suspects across both cases but none were a match to the killer. This did include Tony, Eve's boyfriend, who had actually moved to Amsterdam at this point. He had refused to do any interviews over the years regarding Eve's death, as he was just too distraught, but he was ruled out as the killer through DNA. Another main suspect, Abdul, who was a member of the Playboy Club, had actually died when police were testing DNA, but he was ruled out by police testing his son's DNA which was found not to be a match for being a close relative to the killer. That same year, the cases were featured on BBC's Crime Watch programme, which, if you don't know what this is, it's a programme that ran in the UK from 1984 to 2017 and was where detectives from across the UK featured unsolved crimes and appealed for evidence from the public to solve them. On here, detectives said that both cases were clearly sexually motivated and clearly premeditated since the killer had been prepared and brought a weapon to both murders. They believed that it was extremely unlikely that the killer had only committed these two crimes in his life. They thought that he probably committed crimes both before and after these cases. An old witness from Lynn's case actually watched this episode of Crime Watch and called back in. He assumed that the murder had been solved as he had never been recontacted since the case had been reopened, so he was shocked to see that it was still unsolved. This witness's name was Bernard Andrews and he was now a retired BBC producer. On the night that Lynn was murdered, he was driving home to Waynesbury from London and had travelled across Great West Road in Hounslow at about 1am. A hitchhiker had flagged him down at Sutton Lane Junction, which was about 300 metres from the alleyway where Lynn was murdered. The man waved him down, so Bernard rolled his window down and asked him where he needed a lift to. He said he was going to West Country, but he was extremely agitated, and Bernard said that he just had this instinctive sense to stay away from him, so he didn't end up giving him a lift. Bernard had described this hitchhiker as being 26 years old, having longish dark hair, wearing a brown jacket and carrying a black briefcase. Police believe that Lynn was attacked at 20 past 11. 
So her killer would have had to attack her, throw her over the fence, drag her out of sight, sexually assault her, make sure that he got his murder weapon and then run off up the road. And we don't know how long that he was trying to flag a lift down for, but the timeline would work out quite right for this to be Lynn's killer. And police did believe that it was. But again, the hitchhiker has never been found. The cases were featured on BBC's Crime Watch show again in 2015 on the 40th anniversary of Eve's death. They were now offering a new £40,000 reward for information on either case that led to the arrest of the killer. Detectives said on the show that they believed that at the time of the murders in 1975, the killer would have been aged between 18 to 30 years so he would now be an elderly man. Investigating officer DCI Noel McHugh said it is inconceivable the killer of Eve and Lynn had kept the perfect secret for 40 years, but it's a heavy burden to carry and he must have let details slip over the years, maybe to a partner, a friend or even a cellmate and I would appeal to anyone with information to contact us. They did stress that just because the killer's DNA wasn't on the database doesn't mean that he has never been arrested in the past. It just means that he hasn't been arrested in the last 20 years. It was only in 1995 that police started taking DNA from prisoners. They didn't do this prior to this date. So they believed that there was a high possibility that he had been in prison before the year 1995 when he was a younger man, and they were appealing to any prisoners who were in jail at this time to think back to anything that their cellmates might have said that was incriminating in these cases. The police did receive 60 calls after the programme had aired, but none of the information that was provided on those calls ever led them to the killer. Detectives did believe, however, that there was a possible third case that had been committed by Evan Lynn's killer. And this was the case of Linda Farrow, who was murdered in January 1979, just four years later. Linda was a pregnant mum of two at the time, and on this particular day, she was heading home to Woodford Green in East London after a day of shopping with her mum. When she pulled in the drive, she had heard the phone ringing in her house and ran to answer, leaving her front door open. Two young witnesses heard a woman scream and saw her front door slam. Linda was later found by her children who had walked home from school after she had failed to collect them. She was laid on the kitchen floor, she had been badly beaten and her throat had been slashed with a carving knife which laid next to her. Linda had not been sexually assaulted and no DNA was ever found to test it to see if it was a match to the killer. Even though Linda hadn't been sexually assaulted and the murder weapon was found at the scene, unlike in the other two cases, police still thought that it was a strong possibility that it was the same killer. This is because Linda's home was not far from Eve's in East London. They both had been murdered in their homes with their throat being cut and this was just too similar for them to rule out the link. They theorised that in Linda's case, the killer may have been disturbed and fled quickly. No one to this day has ever been convicted of Linda's murder. 
A possible theory is that Evelyn's killer was the notorious serial killer, the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe was a lorry driver who was convicted of murdering 13 women between the years 1975 and 1980. All of these murders were around West Yorkshire and Manchester, or so the West Yorkshire police believed. Sutcliffe, however, often drove through London in his lorry with work, and he did have links to the city as well during this time, which led some to believe that Sutcliffe has more victims than the 13 he was eventually convicted of murdering. Police officer Chris Clark and journalist Tim Tate have written and published a book together called The Secret Murders regarding Peter Sutcliffe and his alleged other victims. After researching both Eve and Lynn's case, they believed that the cases showed the distinctive and unusual hallmarks of the Ripper serial killer. They also stated in their book that Sutcliffe was in the area close to Eve's flat just days before her murder when he had attended his sister-in-law's wedding. They also believed that he was in London during the time of Lynn's murder as well. During this time, he had stopped off at a home in North London before catching a flight from Heathrow. Heathrow Airport is around a 15-minute drive from Hounslow, the area where Lynn was murdered. They had accused the West Yorkshire Police of hiding evidence that Sutcliffe could be responsible for more murders in the UK. They thought that Sutcliffe hadn't actually just killed prostitutes, but also other women, in different ways and in different areas, to throw police off the scent. They believed that the West Yorkshire Police had refused to look at this evidence, and that they solely concentrated on the fact that his victims were prostitutes, in and around Yorkshire and Manchester. When you look at Lynn's murder in particular, it is very similar to a murder that Sutcliffe had previously been convicted for. In this case, he had bashed the victim over the back of the head and then lifted her over a wall out of sight, just like in Lynn's case. Clark and Tate actually believed that Sutcliffe was responsible for 35 murders in total, with 22 of them remaining unsolved to this day. Sutcliffe's DNA has actually never been tested against the DNA of Evelyn's killer, and police currently only have a mouse swab of Sutcliffe's on file and no blood samples. With Sutcliffe recently dying in the pandemic, there is no way now to obtain this. But it is a bit confusing as to why his DNA has never been tested before in these cases. The West Yorkshire Police have been heavily criticised for inadequately keeping the evidence in the Yorkshire Ripper case, and the Yorkshire Ripper investigation was one of the largest ever in British history, and they were not correctly filing any notes, so it was really hard to cross-reference evidence. A report into the police work that was conducted said that its ineffectiveness in the major incident room was a serious handicap in the Ripper case. There was also an attitude against prostitutes within the West Yorkshire Police at this time. A senior detective called Jim Hobson said in his press conference in October 1979 that Sutcliffe has made it clear he hates prostitutes. Many people do. As a police force, we will continue to arrest prostitutes, which is just a weird thing to say when you're talking about a serial killer, like why were the police concentrating 
on prostitutes and why did you have to mention that you would keep arresting them when you are literally talking about the case of a serial killer. So it is believed that they didn't conduct a thorough investigation as they didn't really care much about the victims as they were prostitutes. So many people believed that there was a cover-up from the West Yorkshire Police. They had conducted a short and shoddy investigation into the Yorkshire Ripper and had ignored or refused to look at further evidence to suggest that he had committed more crimes throughout the UK. Maybe they didn't want to reopen the investigation as it would shine a light on how poorly they had handled the Ripper case and just how much that they had missed. I do personally believe that the Yorkshire Ripper being the killer in Evan Lynn's case does hold some weight. Their killers had clearly planned and thought out their murders and as they left little evidence I think that it shows that they had more than likely done this before and the chances of two serial killers being active throughout the same years in the UK are very slim. And also the fact that Sutcliffe was in London during the time of the murders is just too suspect for me. But I guess it's a shame that we'll just never know as we can't test the DNA to know for sure. And that is all we have up to today on these cases. Both Eve and Lynn's murders still remain unsolved. Lynn's parents are now in their 80s and her mum said that they have missed out on so much over the last 40 years without Lynn being here. They never got to see her travel, go to university or get married and missing out on these memories is the true life sentence. Sadly, Eve's mum Lisa had died back in 1986. Albert said that she could never get over Eve's death. He came home one day to find out that she had passed away suddenly and he knew it was from a broken heart. Unfortunately, Albert also passed away shortly after giving an interview to the Times back in 2009 regarding Eve's murder. He was the last remaining relative of Eve's. Both her parents passed away never knowing who killed their daughter. Both of these cases are extremely sad with how young the victims were and the fact that their killer has never been caught. He would be an elderly man now if he is still alive. Hopefully one day we will find out who he is and he will be brought to justice for his crimes. Thank you so much for listening and if you enjoyed this episode, it would mean so much to me if you left a review to say that you did and hopefully see you next week for another episode of Tell Me Murder.